Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, December 8th. Healthcare wait times in Canada have increased almost 200% over the last 20 years. How does Alberta compare to the rest of the country when it comes to wait times and what can be done to address the issue? We discuss with Bacchus Barua, director of the Fraser Institute Centre for Health Policy Studies. Next, we take a look at the controversy surrounding Bill C-21. What type of firearms are being targeted by the bill and what impact will it have on the average gun owner? We get a breakdown from Dr. Noah Schwartz, professor of political science from the University of the Fraser Valley. The Calgary Food Bank needs your help this holiday season. From record high inflation to rising costs at the grocery stores, our on-air contributor Dave McIver takes a look at the high demand at the food bank ahead of the holidays and what we can do as Calgarians to lend a hand. And finally, $380 million has been lost thanks to online shopping scams in North America. That's just so far in 2022. So before you make that online purchase this holiday season, make sure you're protecting your personal data. We talk about the 12 scams of Christmas with Mary O'Sullivan Anderson, President and CEO of the BBB, serving Southern Alberta and East Kootenai. Healthcare wait times in Canada are the longest ever recorded. That, according to a new study from the Fraser Institute. Joining us with some details into the study is Bacchus Barua, who is the director of the Fraser Institute Centre for Health Policy Studies. Good morning to you, Bacchus. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Sue. Thank you so much for having me on the show. This is shocking stats, and even said it in the tease. Healthcare wait times have increased in Canada by 195% over the past 20 years. Can you break down some of the highlights of what was found in this study? Yeah, thanks, Sue. You know, it's unfortunately not very good news, uh, which really puts a damper on, on, on some of the things that Andy was talking about before with, uh, with the concerts coming in. Unfortunately, when it comes to healthcare, there's, there's not um, a lot of good news. Um, in 2022, uh, last year, when we did the study across Canada, the wait time between getting a referral uh, from GP to getting treatment was 27.4 weeks. Uh, across Canada, that's longer than it was in 2021 when it was 25.6 weeks. It's also longer than it was in 2019 before the pandemic, and it's almost three times as long as it was in 1993. Overall, we're looking at about 1.2 million Canadians on a wait list right now. Definitely not a good trend when it comes to wait times for healthcare. Those not in the know, Bacchus, might look at the you know, pandemic and point to that. But as you did allude to, this was you know maybe highlighted during the pandemic and pushed further down the road as far as being a problem. But that it is not to do with the pandemic at the core, is it? Yeah, you know, we've been doing this, uh, this survey for, for almost 30 years right now. So we really get to see what's happening um, far back uh, in time. What we can see very clearly is that in 2019, before we even recorded the first case of COVID-19, we had a wait time across Canada of 20.9 weeks, which at that time was close to the highest that we'd already seen. What this is telling us is that this is very, very clearly a structural issue that we have in Canada that we've uh, almost neglected for for a really long time. And what's happened over time, over the last three or four years, is COVID has really exacerbated the problem and really push the system over the edge. We've seen wait times now increase four years in a row, uh, and this year is the highest on record that we've ever seen in 30 years. I mean, this is a giant question for a very, very broken system, Bacchus, but what do we do? How do we move forward? Is it time for tiered health care? Is it time for privatization? Does that help? Well, I think one of the things that we can say very, very clearly is that what we're doing right now doesn't work, and what I think many provinces have done for the longest time has not worked. Uh, we've seen some uh, some good uh, experiments in, in provinces like Saskatchewan between 2010 and 2014 where they partnered with a lot of private clinics. 
they also um, established uh, centralized pools, uh, pooling for patient referrals. They managed to get their wait times down uh, from some of the highest wait times in circa about 2009 and 10. Uh, to some of the shortest by 14 and 15, but even in Saskatchewan, wait times eventually crept up. And that's telling us that there's a lot that provinces can probably do uh, at the margins within the confines of the Canada Health Act. Uh, but really, if we're trying to think of change, we're going to have to look at other countries with universal health care around the world that, that have the same goals, but are really uh, doing universal health care very differently. And these are countries like Switzerland, the Netherlands, Germany, France, uh, Australia. All of them have universal health care, but they have far more resources um, uh, they have uh, they spend about the same as we do, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, and they certainly have shorter wait times, and certainly nothing like the sort of wait times we're seeing over here. Now, today's study, of course, was just focused on Canada, and it was of course we also have uh, different um, uh, different wait times for provinces, and unfortunately in Alberta we're also seeing uh, the longest wait time that we've ever seen in the province. That's 33.3 weeks between getting a referral from a GP to actually getting treatment. Uh, by contrast, just, just for context, in 2019, that was 28 weeks. So certainly, you know, it, it's increased during the pandemic, but Alberta has struggled with this issue for a very, very long time. And the wait time in Alberta is longer than the, than the Canadian average as well this year. And it's, of course, certainly longer than it was in 1993. What we know for certain is that what we're doing right now doesn't work. Um, and, and, you know, patients are really uh, the ones who are paying the price um, if we don't look at change. I know, uh, you know, as a Canadian, Bacchus, I would consider paying more tax to, to get better service. But is it, at the essence, at the heart of this problem, not throwing more money at it, uh, but a real rethink? Is, is Does it cost dollars, or is this just an, or a reorg that we need to do? You know, unfortunately, this is one of those situations in which in which money is not going to fix our problems. Um, it, you know, we haven't looked at it in this particular study, but we just did a study last month that was looking at Canada versus 27 other countries with universal health care. And Canada actually ranked at the top in terms of um, health care spending as a percentage of GDP and was eighth highest out of those, I, actually, sorry, was uh, eighth highest out of 30 countries uh, in terms of health care spending per capita. So we're really already at the top when it comes to spending. Alberta, for the longest time, was actually a, a much higher spender as well compared to other provinces. Now it's about um, mid-tier uh, but it's not a spending problem. It's about what are the incentives in place. Um, a, are, you know, are we using the best tools at our disposal? When we're looking at other countries like Switzerland, Germany, all of these other countries, they understand that the private sector, you know, is not the antithesis to the universal health care goal. It's really meant to be a partner or act as a pressure valve. They also fund their hospitals based on um, activity-based funding. Um, which essentially means money follows the patient. Every time a patient comes into a hospital, the hospital gets money to treat that patient, and it actually incentivizes treatment. Uh, in Canada, we have a very old approach of global budgeting, where every time a patient comes into a hospital, they essentially treat it as a cost because they're eating into the budget. Um, and of course, most of these other countries expect patients to share the cost of treatment. I know that might sound surprising to a lot of readers, uh, to some readers, to a lot of to a lot of listeners, mm-hmm. but. Most other countries understand that, that we need to, you know, uh, temper demand. We need to um, ensure that these scarce resources are being used responsibly. And, of course... Oh, are you there, Bacchus? We've lost Marcus. you a little bit. Uh, sorry sorry oh, about there that. there Sorry, uh, we lost third, you for a sec. Um, sorry. Um, uh, the, the third point was just that they expect patients to share in the cost of treatment, but they also have exemptions for vulnerable populations as well. Uh, but really, all these countries uh, do universal health care very differently. And if we don't rethink healthcare, 
uh, we're going to have the same problems in the future. You know, and back as I was going to say that, just reading a little bit more into the Fraser Institute study here and, and some responses to it from those who did the work, that, you know, this isn't, waiting for timely health care is not just a minor inconvenience. It really has a trickle-down effect throughout everything in our world. Absolutely. You know, I, I think one of the things is, is, is when we think of the healthcare system as a free healthcare system, which of course it isn't, um, there's a tendency to brush away some of the problems. Uh, we actually have a very expensive healthcare system, and, and wait times are not a benign inconvenience. They can result uh, in people waiting in pain, they can result in poor healthcare outcomes, and, and in the worst cases, they can even result uh, in death. You know, we really do, there's actually evidence that, that we've already are starting to lead our, lead our foot into that situation, but that's not where we want to be. I think when it comes to healthcare, we're all on the same page in terms of uh, we want to have a healthcare system that is actually serving patients with patients at the center of it and the system coming secondary. Right now, we are in a situation where we prioritize the system and patients come secondary, and, you know, it's just backwards. Yep, uh, certainly we all know that it's there. How do we get back on track? Uh, that is the big question. We appreciate your time this morning, Bacchus. Thank you for having me on the show. Hopefully there will be change and I'll have better news next year. Absolutely. We'll catch up and get an update. Thanks so much. That is uh, Bacchus Barua, director of the Fraser Institute's Center for Health Policy Studies. The federal government aiming to ban handguns and assault-style weapons. Will there be the teeth behind the C, that Bill C-21 needed to pass it, or will public pressure uh, end up quashing it? Joining us to talk about it is Dr. Noah Schwartz, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Fraser Valley and author of On Target, Gun Culture, Storytelling, and the NRA. Good morning to you, Dr. Schwartz. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. So uh, it's a tough one because I think there's a lot of confusion around this. I'm confused by it. Bill C-21, what weapons specifically are being targeted by this bill by the federal government? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that confusion is is certainly understandable given the inconsistency that we've seen with the policy so far. When Bill C-21 was brought in, um, it was supposed to be a a sort of a freeze on, on handgun ownership as well as like the formalization of the assault-style weapon ban that was brought in in 2020. Um, what happened in legislative committee, so after a bill is discussed in Parliament, it goes to a special committee uh, where we hear from experts um, and it's talked about. Uh, and what the, the government did is introduce at, at sort of at the last minute in committee uh, this, this clause that would actually greatly expand the number of firearms that would be banned under this bill. Um, and as we've seen, uh, we've heard from, from hunting groups and, and from hunters in Canada, a lot of these firearms are, are guns that are commonly used by Canadian hunters. So what does this mean for current gun owners? Is this if I wanted to purchase a gun, you know, moving forward, or if I already own a handgun or or any weapon for that matter? Yeah, so the government already used uh, what's called an order in council, so similar to kind of an executive order in the U.S., um, to freeze uh, new handgun purchases. So if you're a handgun owner, uh, you have a restricted firearms license. It means you've gone through uh, a very, very heavy level of screening and vetting. Um, you can still, you know, own and use the firearms that you have, but you can't uh, purchase new ones, sell them, or trade them. Uh, so essentially, the property that, that you went through this huge licensing process, um, very, very invasive and expensive to own, uh, the property is now essentially valueless, although you can still use it while, while it still works. Um, and for those who uh, own some of the, the new rifles that have been added to the list, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. The, gov- the government hasn't been clear if there's going to be a buyback program or if it's just going to mean that like uh, that, that the firearms you just suddenly won't be able to, to own or use them. 
they'll have to turn them in. Okay, so I, I mean, I've never held a, a weapon like a gun in my life, so I'm very naive about this whole thing. But what is it that people are most upset about when it comes to this bill, Doctor? Is it the fact that, you know, they can't now buy a handgun, say, if they want to, or that they may not be able to keep the ones they have? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing, um, the biggest thing that I, the gun owners that I've spoken to in my research uh, that I've talked to, um, feel uh, betrayed by the government. Um, gun, since the 1990s in Canada, there's been a really, really strict system of vetting in place around gun ownership in Canada. If you want to own a gun in Canada, you have to go through this licensing process. You have to take a course, pass a written and practical test. And the licensing process is kind of invasive. They do uh, constant background checks on you. They interview character references. They talk to your spouse, or if you've had a breakup in the last two years, they, ha- they will call up your ex um, and ask uh, them about your character. So people sacrifice a lot of their, their privacy and money uh, to get a gun license in Canada. Um, so to suddenly be told that property you've owned and used safely your entire life uh, is suddenly too dangerous to own, I think people feel kind of uh, upset and betrayed by that. Um, a lot of people who own uh, handguns, for example, uh, I mean, to own a handgun in Canada, you have to be a sports shooter. So you have to be active in, in a, a club uh, or at a range. Um, many are very, very active participants in the shooting sports. And now uh, the sport that they, they've enjoyed, uh, many of whom for years and years and years, they'll no longer be able to, to do. So I think that's why people are upset. You know, Dr. Dr. Schwartz, uh, we've heard so much about uh, the uh, gun legislation or lack thereof in the U.S. And we, we do know, we've heard about the NRA having a long influence on gun legislation in the U.S. But do we have a similar gun lobby or lobby groups here in Canada? Yeah, so there are certainly uh, pro-gun groups um, in, in Canada, uh, but they don't have the same sort of uh, reach and power that the NRA does uh, in the United States. The NRA has been around for uh, over 100 years. Um, and they've had a, a major influence on U.S. Uh, firearms policy. And that's why we see like a, a very serious absence of gun laws in the U.S. Um, whereas in Canada, uh, the, the pro-gun groups, they're a little bit smaller and they tend to be uh, more moderate. Um, for example, some of the pro-gun groups in Canada support uh, laws like licensing and safe store. Or the NRA, which is completely beyond the pale in the U.S. It's an ongoing discussion and certainly an important and a big one here in Alberta. We'll talk about that with our listeners. But thank you for your time and breaking it down. Appreciate your time, Doctor. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Dr. Noah Schwartz, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Well, after a year that saw food prices climb by numbers not seen in decades due to record inflation... Cost of groceries in Canada is expected to continue rising into the new year. That's according to a new report. Our on-air contributor Dave McIver went down to visit an organization in the city that does so much to keep people fed. The latest Canada Food Price Report released Monday estimates food prices will increase by another 5 to 7% on average next year, adding hundreds of dollars to the average family's annual expenses. As a Calgarian of 34 years, I decided to take a trip to a place I've never been before, the Calgary Food Bank. I wanted to see how things were done down there and how things were going during this busy holiday season. Betty Jo Kaiser is the communications coordinator with the Food Bank, and we started with a tour, first in the call centre. We like to think of food as the connector. And, I mean, food banks, in many ways, we're a Band-Aid. We're a, here's food now. And people can access the Calgary Food Bank as much as they need to every 10 days. Um, There is a bit of a wait right now because of the increase in demand. Um, But when you call in and you order your hamper, a few questions we need to ask so that we have the data. Uh, It's very important for our funders in the community to understand things like who's working, 
How much are they making? Uh, so we do ask a few uh, questions. We do not get too personal. But one of the most important questions we ask is, do you need help beyond food? And we've recently refreshed this program and have discovered the vast majority of people that call in say, yeah, actually, I would love that. So then we have another group of volunteers that follows up phones them back and says, okay, what are you looking for? Um, anecdotally, the number one thing people need help with is accessing uh, government supports and being able to um, understand how to uh, help with taxes, how to access uh, English classes. So we can plug people in, guide them to community supports, and begin to address those root causes of food insecurity. Next, it was off to the warehouse. So when you come into the warehouse, and I was so happy to give you a tour, uh, when you visit the Calgary Food Bank warehouse, you see tons of food. And so your first thought is, oh, there's lots of food here. But that food is gone in three weeks, and other food is brought in. We have incredible uh, donors food industry partners, so grocery stores and suppliers, for whatever reason, they may not be able to sell the product or they don't have the space for the product. We receive it and we store it and then we redistribute it. So yeah, when you come in here every three weeks, the, the food is in and the food goes out and it's like, it's astonishing. It's a lot of food. Well, the core items are always in need and the core items are things like cereal, pasta, canned vegetables, always needing canned tomatoes, canned meat, particularly canned chicken, canned tuna. Uh, peanut butter is always great to give. If you're at the grocery store and you see those pre-packs, that's super easy because those are core items that go into our hampers. Or if you're grocery shopping with your family and, you know, maybe your kids love, like you said, the Annie's noodles or maybe there's a cereal they love, grab an extra box. Demand is at an all-time high. And with that, the food bank has seen their normal demographic change from what it once was. The interesting thing about the demographics, not only at the Calgary Food Bank, but we're seeing it across the whole country, is that people that are working are not able to pay all of their bills. And the first thing, the easiest thing to manipulate when it comes to a household budget is groceries. Your rent or mortgage is fixed. Your light bill, your heating bill, there's not a lot of wiggle room with that. So when it comes to groceries, that's where people will cut back. And so what we've been seeing recently is a much higher number of people that are working, that have one or two or more jobs, but the money's just not stretching. Our demand is definitely up again. So we're up about 26% year over year, but it has just been going up, up, up all summer, all spring. It is unprecedented. The Calgary Food Bank has been here for 40 years and it has never ever been like this. For every dollar that's donated, we can distribute five dollars worth of food. And of course, um, funds are tight. So if you have time on your hands, we always are looking for volunteers. 40% of our warehouse operation is volunteerism. So we cannot push out the hampers. We cannot feed the thousands of Calgarians each week without volunteer time. If you'd like to help out the Calgary Food Bank, you can go to calgaryfoodbank.com or reach them at 403-253-2059. For 770 CHQR, I'm Dave McIver. It's the most wonderful time of the year. 
for scammers. Joining us to talk about the 12 scams of Christmas and the importance of protecting your personal data this holiday season is Mary O'Sullivan Anderson, President and CEO of BBB, serving Southern Alberta and the East Kootenai area. Good morning to you, Mary. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me this morning. Scammers love the Christmas holidays because we're all in a hurry, we're rushing, we're doing a lot of online shopping, perhaps not paying attention as much as we should. So what do we do? Do we just slow it down and pay more attention to our credit cards and online, etc.? What, what's your advice here? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The fact is scammers, you know, they're criminals and they're very sophisticated. So they have ways of making sure that they're catching you when you least suspect it. So, you know, slow down, make sure that if you are online shopping, you're visiting sites that you know and you trust. Um, Make sure that you're not just clicking through links that are coming up on your social media while you're scrolling for that, that, you know, toy or product or service that you want right away. Um, And just slow down a little bit. You know, I always say it's a great time to support local. I'm not saying not to do online shopping, but it's a great opportunity to also get out there and support local businesses this season, too. Number one on the list that I'm looking here, we we won't have time to go through all 12, but we'll talk in generalities here, Mary, is the... uh, misleading social media ads what do you mean because i always think that people are just stealing our info but when you say misleading is that just to get our money or is it the incorrect product what are we talking about there yeah both both really um sometimes you're clicking on something you think it's a product that that simply doesn't exist it's a counterfeit it's a fraudulent item or you're not going to get any item at all and what you're actually doing is giving up your information um to scammers that may not use the information right away but may use it you know weeks months later when you least suspect it as well so it's not even just a matter of keeping an eye on the credit card today it's always making sure that you're doing the due diligence to make sure that when you're giving that information out that it's safe and protected mary gift cards obviously a big thing for us through the holidays we can mail them we can give them but is there anything that we need to really be aware of and be cognizant of if buying and when buying gift cards well make sure that you're buying those gift cards from trusted resellers or retailers for sure um you're not buying them online or or off somebody who might be posting it maybe on on facebook Um, you want to make sure that you're buying it from trusted sellers so that you know that when you're giving the gift of a gift card that the recipient is actually receiving the gift card what about and i know we get technical and i know not everybody has kind of this technology but we've heard a lot over the past couple of years about the vpns and, and having a protected i i guess you'd say connection do we need something that sophisticated yeah i think that 